I'm Mark McGettigan, aka the FPL General. I've had three top 500 finishes during my time as a Fantasy Premier League manager, and I want to help you to be the very best fantasy manager you can be. So join me every week as I share my tips, tricks, and insight on the Athletics FPL podcast on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual places, and listen ad free on the Athletic app. Hello, hi, me and Macintosh, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm here because Joe Devine is playing Rocket League, <laughs> or something. Joining me on the show today, a baby abandoned by his parents and raised in the wild by a pack of benevolent PC486s, it's data expert Mark Carey. <laughs> wow. Well, I wasn't sure if you were introducing me or Seb there. No, no, very much you. I know that you you would have you would have covered over those early memories now, but you've 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 been brought back into normal society and, and you're all the better for it. Normal society's all the better for it. Thank you, yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's my first time on the TIFO Football Podcast, so what thank a, you for having me, first and foremost. An absolute pleasure. What a day to make your debut, because we've got so much, including Live, via satellite, from the basement of an illegal drinking den in the seedy German port town of Hamburg, it's Seb Stafford Bloor. Joe Devine is playing Rocket League, just he, that I confirm that. Almost definitely, certainly. Definitely is, yeah. Almost certainly. I know that you know, some people with time off will have a cultural journey through you know, the old towns in Spain, or, or perhaps go to the Carpathians to walk the forests and fend off wild dogs like Nigel Pearson. But I think we can be fairly sure that right now, at this moment, Joe Devine is playing Rocket League. How are you, Seb? I'm good. Was it wild dogs with Pearson or were they wolves? I prefer wolves as a, as a story. It sounds a bit more... Wolves sounds know. better, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Let's go yeah. with wolves. I'm well, though. Thank you for asking. No, it's uh, d- your your welfare is my yeah. number one concern as standby host of, of this podcast. Hey, so, no wolves, no wild dogs here. All is well. We're all fine. That's good. Just, just, just cats with you. Just many, many cats. What else are we discussing, though, today as we stand here in the content hinterlands between summer filler and pre-season predictions? Well, quite a lot. Barcelona, what are they doing? Zinchenko to Arsenal, is that actually a really smart deal? Jesse Lingard, why has he just signed up for a year of Nottingham Forest? And if you like signing up to things for a year, or perhaps even more, you should check out The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO though, that way you get a special deal and we look really good because it's basically the mothership of football journalism. It's where all the good stuff happens. And you know what? It's not just football either. If you like your NFL or your baseball, so much stuff there. Wonderful, wonderful place. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. But now that contractually obliged thing is done, I think there's nothing else to do but enter the cool hands of the warm embrace of the TIFO Football Podcast. So the big story this week, you've probably seen it on The Athletic, you might have seen the TIFO video, uh, Barcelona's finances. What on earth has gone wrong there? A year ago, it looked bad enough. Now, it, it seems even worse. They're selling off their La Liga broadcasting rights for the next 25 years. Um, another 15% just has just been sold off. Now, 
I don't pretend to be a business genius unless I'm talking to my parents and trying to win their respect. But there are concrete variables and there are transient variables. And your concrete variables are the things that hold your business together. That's the money that you know is coming in, fueling your business, allowing you to pay wages. That's the good stuff. Because the transient variables, that might be a, a big advertising deal coming in for your podcast or not coming in for your podcast. These are the things that can kill you. So you look after your concrete and you win with your transient. TV revenues are concrete variables. This is 25 years of their money going forward and, and they're letting it go and then spending it on footballers and not just any footballers. No one's doubting Lewandowski's a great player. But he's not young. They're not going to get much back on the empties when that contract expires. Seb Stafford Bloor, are you as perturbed by this as I am? Well, first of all, hilarious that I find myself as a kind of like financial expert now that everybody else has left the Tifa podcast other than me. That's excellent. <laughs> it's concerning. But then I suppose there are a couple of different ways to look at it. The first is obviously that's 25% of the television revenue for the next 25 years. You wonder whether that represents some kind of a hedge as to what the future broadcasting model of not just Spanish football, but European football is likely to be. Uh, um, so you're suggesting, is there, is there a certain amount of cynicism here that it's like, yeah, we'll sell the La Liga rights and in the background continue to push for, you know, playing some football that perhaps isn't La Liga? Did you just do your super villain eyebrow? Yeah, yes, I did. <laughs> I've known you for quite a long time. And that is most definitely your super villain eyebrow. Yeah, well, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it, it's a it's a fair assumption to make given some of the conversations that are happening around uh, European football and the future of the Champions League. It'd be naive to think that that didn't factor into the equation somewhere. The other thing, I can't remember if it's a conversation Joe and I had in private or on the podcast, but there's a point to be made about the fact that, well, Joan Laporta is not going to be president in 25 years. Barcelona presidents tend to be judged on what they can do in the here and now. I know that the Bartomeu regime is vilified for exactly the opposite reason. But if you can produce as a president a, not a kind of a, a sporting renaissance, because let's not forget Barcelona only finished second in La Liga. They're not sort of sitting in mid-table. But if you can replicate what they produced the first time he was president, so you build a new team, you re-establish your identity your associated revenues go through the roof as you progress and as you collect things like prize money and Champions League titles, the Liga titles. My only fear with that is that the game is very, very different to what it was back then. We are sort of 15 years later. You cannot grow in quite the same way anymore. Barcelona have grown enormously and to the point where I wouldn't say they're at a glass ceiling, but difficult to know how they can advance further. It's, um, I'm, I'm interested in a kind of, in small letters and inverted commas by what happens next. Mark, as a football team, Barcelona with Lewandowski and Rafinha, is there enough there for them to win the title now or are they still going to get left behind by European champions Real Madrid? I think there is. On a footballing sense, I'm just confused by the, just the sheer turnover that, that Barcelona are having. There's just so many players coming in. There's so many players that they want to, to get out and it's just chaos on field as well as, as off field. And you think of someone like Rafinha and, and Lewandowski and... Usman Dembele, they've got Ansu Fati, they've got Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. They've got so many good players. Fitting them into fitting them into the correct system is is one thing. Keeping them all happy is another thing because Lewandowski will want to play all the time. So will Aubameyang. So will all of them. So I know that there's a lot of games to, to be played, but from a footballing sense, it just seems like they're just going a bit sort of haphazard in their recruitment. Just anyone who's really good, they're it, just going for. It feels like the, the smart tactic here 
and I am absolutely basing this on playing football manager, but the smart tactic here surely would have been just to put out the fires, get everything straightened out. Apparently there's a good academy. I don't know if anyone's read any articles about this, but get some young players in the team. It's not like people will stop supporting Barcelona. It's, it's you know, it's, they are more than more than just a club, apparently. And then just have two or three years where you start to build back up properly. But this is just completely the opposite. Seb, it's so confusing a strategy that they're executing here that part of me is starting to go a bit conspiracy theory i'm not usually one for conspiracy theories but part of me is thinking is there any possibility that this is a kind of let's just do really stupid big stuff here and it will either work or the club will be in so much trouble that there'll be no option left but to perhaps sell to any one of many many big groups with lots and lots of money who would just sweep and clear Uh, am i being cynical well yes you are um but i suppose the question that leads from that is if that situation was to develop, how would the club statutes have to be changed to accommodate it? So like the existence of billionaires and sovereign wealth funds and countries and governments, like the, this is football's fail safe for teams at the right at the top of the mountain. But Barcelona, because they're not owned by an individual in the same way that say Chelsea were, it's a bit more complicated than that. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's not something that, that is that is quite some failure you're plotting. I, I think the club have kind of, if you look at their recruiting patterns, I think there is some rhyme and reason to it. I think you can kind of understand what they're trying to do, I guess, within reason. But then has anybody that they've signed, Lewandowski aside, really moved the needle for them? I mean, Lewandowski will score goals, we know this, but say you could have made a very strong case for just basing your attack around Ferran Torres and Ansu Fati, and they've re-signed Usman Dembele, which is great, and yet they've sort of added players as a, in a kind of compulsive way. It's like, well, I, 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 I just have to have Marcus Alonso, He's the latest one that's apparently sort of moving towards a Barcelona move. Andreas Christensen. I need an Andreas Christensen and I'm willing to, to mortgage my future just so that I can have him. It's like, it's, I know that that's a fan's perspective and it's a kind of knee jerky, that's ludicrous, you know, transfer window response, but that is actually how it feels. So I, I get why it's fair to be a little bit conspiratorial. Absolutely. It's, it's, I'll tell you one thing though, you know, it will probably help Spanish football viewing figures because a lot of people are going to be tuning in to see how this one works out. Now that is a cynical view. Mark Carey, one thing to change the subject completely, not to be cynical about, I think, the transfer of Zinchenko to Arsenal. Is it just me? I think that's a really good, really good move. I do think it's a good move. I think it's a good move for Arsenal. Um, I think it's a good move for Zinchenko as well because I actually looked into it. He actually hasn't played more than 50% of Manchester City's domestic league games since he's joined. So I think from his perspective, he'll you know he'll be hoping to get more game time. I think from Arsenal's perspective, they're getting someone who is, and I've read a piece on this, James McNicholas on the Athletic website, that their sort of recruitment policy this this summer has been for versatility, positional versatility. So they've obviously got Vieira come in, Zinchenko, Jesus, all players who are able to play in multiple positions. So I think from that perspective, Zinchenko will be a really good addition and for Arsenal, really good versatility to be able to play a left-back, but as we know, he can also play in midfield as well. What is his best position? Because when, when he first came on my radar, I think it was France 2016, the European Championships, and he was a very, very highly rated creative central midfielder in a sort of Paul Scholesy kind of role. Now, obviously, being used in lots of different ways. What, what is he? 
I don't know, and I say that because he's played predominantly at, at left-back for Manchester City, so until he gets an extended run of games in the Premier League, maybe in midfield, then we can then truly, I'm thinking with my data hat on, we can have a sample size big enough to be able to actually <laughs> appraise the two. So I, I'm not entirely sure what his best position is, but as I say, from an Arsenal perspective, I do think it's really useful that they, he's able to play left-back. Completely different player to Kieran Tierney, who's obviously going to be more of a an overlapping left-back, and Zinchenko likes to tuck inside a little bit more because he obviously has that tendency to to try and drift towards the, the midfield because he's capable of doing so. Also, the way that, obviously, a Pep Guardiola side you know, likes his, his full-backs to tuck in. So, the short answer is I'm not too sure, but time will tell. And it'll, time will tell on also yeah, how Arteta will use him. Will he actually use him regularly in a, in a defensive midfield or a central midfield position? Seb, it's a very modern sort of thing, a Zinchenko-style player, isn't it? Because he's basically really good at everything. He's technically very good. He's intelligent. He seems like a nice kid. Sort of player of a generation, really, isn't he? Yeah, if you ran an academy, like a kind of a, a global academy, and you just wanted to create footballers, not for any specific purpose, not for any particular team. You just want to create players with a value everywhere. You kind of create that, wouldn't you? Because you could think, well, yeah, I could put him there and, and you know, most teams will like him. And he's like a, a piece of clothing in, in a neutral tone. Like he goes with a lot of stuff. Um, That's beautiful. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. For a just, Monday as well. I haven't even had much coffee today. Just, like, just a, a nice pair of slacks. Yeah, but he, he's, he's just like, every time I watch him, and I... M- Mark hits the nail on the head. You don't quite know what he is. And I think that's partly a symptom of the fact that you can imagine him being so many different things at the same time within reason. But like, imagine he's, he's really the, the ideal Guardiola component, probably not in the sort of the full-time starting sense forever and ever, but in the, the kind of, right, you, you have a player on your bench, you can play three or four different roles. You can bring him in. He's going to play to an incredibly high standard. And yet, despite that, every time I watch him play for Ukraine, he plays extremely well. And that's, that's got to be a measure of a player, really. You can just sort of slot out of the muscle memory of being a fullback or being a wingback or being a defensive midfielder and shoulder a creative burden within an international side in international football. That's uh, That really does speak to uh, a pretty impressive personality. You'd want him on your five-a-side team, wouldn't you? 100%. Because you'd be like, you can go left, he can go, he'll, he'll do whatever he wants. Get a decent goalkeeper and someone who can do step overs. You, you're away. Five Probably going goal too. He would rotate into goal. Like he wouldn't be the guy that sort of, you know, fan himself right at the other end of the pitch when it was time to kind of drop back and go in. He's a good lad. Not, good not, lad. On, my, good lad. not on my team, he wouldn't. Goal's <laughs> the only position I can play. Three bouts of COVID, I can't even walk up a flight of stairs anymore. <laughs> um, Arsenal's team, Mark, if we're, if we're saying no injuries, no absences, what would you see their starting lineup as we go into the new season? Ooh, that tough is a one. Good Seb, question. you can join in as well. So yeah. in goal, no change in goal. Uh, Ramsdale's been brilliant. Sure. I mean, he has been very good. <gasps> brilliant is strong because <gasps> I, no, but I, I I think I think Ramsdale is a better player than I thought he was. I think he did. He had excellent moments. He made some really brilliant saves. Is he a brilliant goalkeeper? Eh, I want to see a bit more. I'm not saying he's not. I just there are a couple of ropey moments towards the end of the season which I thought that had they gone a different way, Arsenal's season might have ended in a different way. But he's young and he's developing. So I'm just, I'm not, put away the anointing oil, is what I'm saying. Like, he's, <laughs> not, he's not quite there. He's growing and he's developing. Like he's just not quite, yeah. 
I can I, see I, that. I, <laughs> I think he's got he's got presence. Like he, he puts himself about a bit. I like that in a goalkeeper. Yeah, he's definitely got character. He's yeah, he's good on the ball as well as as being a good shot stopper as well. I think he's been key to to Arsenal's build up and sometimes bypassing the the defense in terms of building up and just drilling a pass to what looks like it is just kind of hoofing it. He drills a pass to to the wings and sometimes into central areas and kind of gets Arsenal up the field with a pass rather than just a, a long ball, which oh, is good. I like him. I like it. Uh, Mark, t- tell me what formation it's going to be. Well, I was reading again, reading James McNicholas's piece, and I think that in pre-season they've gone more for a four-three-three, whereas I think last season it was more of a four-two-three-one. Mm. So it, it begs the question as well with Vieira coming in, how that sort of alchemy is going to work in the more at the top end of the field. So you think obviously they've got Saka, Jesus come in, Martinelli, Lacazette's obviously gone, Vieira coming in, uh, Odegaard. Odegaard in that think free roll. There's going to it's great to have that that depth of the squad, which I think Arsenal have been lacking for a while. But as well as that positional versatility that I spoke about. I think that it's good that they've also, I think Arteta in some of the quotes that I've read has has said that he wants to become unpredictable and he wants his team within game as well as between games to be more and more unpredictable. So I think they've kind of got that, you know, whether it's formational, whether it's personnel, whether it's within game, between games. So it'd be an exciting season for Arsenal, I think. Seb, they fell short right at the end of this season. Can they make it into the top four this year? Yeah, 100%. I, I still think the only reason they really fell short last season, well, two reasons. Firstly, they didn't get the goals in in January that they needed that would have gotten through some of those difficult games where they perhaps didn't perform, where they were a little bit, you know, as Arteta has said, predictable in matches. And secondly, as a group, it seemed a little bit brittle. They haven't really learned how to absorb some of the punches that come with the fixture list. So I think looking back, that defeat at Tottenham and then going to Newcastle, I think you can see the sort of the, the mental baggage that grew during those two games. And I think you, you become a little bit better as a result of that as an experience. But also if you add in the Vieira transfer is really interesting because if you're trying to become less predictable, then you give yourself an alternative to Odegaard. You, you give yourself another source of creativity. That's very, very important. And Sinchenko can be used in lots of different ways. Like these things matter, having that kind of agility and, and kind of I'm not sure what the, quite the right word is, but I suppose just flexibility to kind of to, to to adjust around the challenges. So yeah, I think it's going to depend on a few other things. Like Man United were absolutely hopeless last season. I don't think that's particularly controversial to say that Arsenal might have been a beneficiary of that had they finished in the Champions League places. So they'll need a couple of other things to, to go their way. So maybe I don't know. Maybe if, if Chelsea are this season's Manchester United and Man United are still Man United, then it could could work out. But they certainly look stronger. You know when the season ends and there's a nice sort of buffer zone between it and your brain moves on to different things and then you you look back at the last season and you're like, how did Tottenham finish fourth? They were so bad at the beginning mm. of the season. I might defer to Seb for this one. Yeah, I mean... That, <laughs> well, it was almost was, by default. Like, I... Yeah. If I, I was an Arsenal fan, I would still be fuming even now yeah, that Tottenham were allowed to come from where they came from yeah. to come forth. Yeah, it never should have happened, clearly. And it's not to take anything away from Conte and his players because they did go on a good run of form. But I think it was a, they finished by default because Arsenal collapsed. Man United were terrible. West Ham sort of put all of their eggs in the Europa League basket towards the end of the season, probably from about February onwards. And that nearly paid off. And Tottenham were just consistent enough to in the right place when the music stopped and I think it's very interesting I know Tottenham's a separate topic but my worry was that nobody at Spurs would kind of realise that uh, going into the summer and think well we're a fourth place team we're back in the Champions League we won't invest anything well this is a team that's moving it's got potential it can grow into something else entirely 
And thankfully, not the case, because they clearly see that, uh, that it was a little bit of a happy accident. OK, now other clubs making transfers. And I, Seb, I need your, your giant football brain here, but I am fairly sure the last time Nottingham Forest, it might have been the last time but one, were promoted back into the top division. Mm. They finished third the following season. That uh, was under Frank Clark after Brian Clough's demise. I'm fairly sure they came straight back up and finished third. I think they went down another time, the Pierre van Hooydonk time. Yeah, and then they came back up. I, I think I think you're you're thinking about the penultimate time when they got promoted. It is a penultimate time. Yeah. This time, that's a very tortuous and, and not really well thought out way of getting there. Yeah. This time, Forrester back, they've bought a lot of players. Let's start with Jesse Lingard. It's just a one-year deal, which feels like sensible thinking from Nottingham Forest, Mark. I think so. I think I'd, I'd put it in the category of a calculated risk yeah. because, well, for both player and, and club, but again, think about the same as Zinchenko for beneficial for, for both because, I mean, let's have it right, like he basically didn't play at all last season. He had a great season at West Ham the season before. There's a player in there, we know that. He's, he's not a young player anymore. Financially, yeah, it, it makes sense because it is just that that one year deal. Um, I think it'd be good for Lingard as well because I think Forrest will, if not build the team around him, then the way that they play or certainly the way that they played last season was a it was a three four one two, and that one was a uh, was Phillips in Canacle, and he's now now not at the club anymore. So it would be Lingard who maybe comes in there and has that sort of ability to be creative and to roam with with two players ahead of him. So you'd think that he'd thrive from that as well. So. Hopefully, from Forrest's perspective and from Lingard's perspective for his career, it will be a, a good move for all parties. How, how good is he? Because when you're a team like Manchester United and you should be Champions League latter stages every season, I don't think Jesse Lingard is quite that standard. But he is a very good player. 32 England caps, a lot of experience. Yeah, no, you're right. I think he, he suits the sort of the rung down from Manchester United, I think, kind of like a, a West Ham United and I know Forrest have just come up, but he, I think he suits being a, an important player within a, a team that's not quite in the upper echelons of the, the Premier League or maybe European football, as he's proven at, at West Ham. And I do think that he will have a, a season similar to that next season. And as a wider point for Forrest, I think they've made some really good signings they've been really active in the in the transfer market really put their money where their mouth is some great signings i know that seb you'll probably know better than me with tayo awanyi obviously from from the bundesliga and nico williams coming in trying to think who else they got harry toffolo lewis o'brien come both from huddersfield um dean henderson obviously come from manchester united on loan so they had some good recruitment and obviously lingard's the, the latest one in that Seb, Jesse Lingard, it's not always the most well thought of player for some reason. Um, very easy for you know, a portion of Man United fans to turn against him. But he's, I mean, it's not just me, is it? He is good. Yeah, he is a good player. I, I, find, I find some of the conversations around Jesse Lingard quite weird. Like it's, he's a really good player. He's, uh, I, I suppose he's still a current England international. His international days might kind of be over now. He probably won't go to the World Cup. But he seems a fairly fun-loving guy who enjoys his life. He's not young. I know that's the great Jesse Lingard cliche to think he's always like 22. <laughs> no, he's nearly 30. But a good player. He just seems to enjoy being a professional footballer. And he seems to inspire something quite weird, which I've never been able to properly define and, and, or understand. Like, I, There's a weird objection to Jesse Lingard, which is a little bit baffling. But he's a perfectly good player. And, and actually, in the right system, he could become a really good one. I don't think it's unreasonable to, to say that actually if you put all of these Forest players, particularly if you put Lingard in a system with Awani on the left and Brennan Johnson on the right, I really want to watch that team. Like I, I, I want to watch 
what they do because that's a that's a really interesting group. Awani is I still think Awani needs to start well. He's a very very talented player, but I feel like if he has a couple of goals through August and September and has the confidence to move forward, you, you sort of you'll see the rainbow of his abilities. But as a group, that's not very sort of 18th, 19th, 20th position, is it? Hands on heart, where do you think Forrest will finish? Uh, Mark? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'll sit on. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I could come up with an exact position, but what I was going to say is, is more of a broad term, is that if it clicks, because they've had such a high turnover of players, if it clicks and goes well, there could be a surprise package yeah. and maybe sneak the upper echelons of the bottom half, which I think they'd definitely take. Yeah. But if it, I'm trying to think of recent examples, like Fulham did it a couple of seasons ago where they had a high turnover of players and it didn't work. So my answer is dependent <laughs> on whether or not that clicks because it is such a high turnover of players and you need that time to be able to, to have a coherent I'm going to say right now, 14th. Every single year, there's like a team that everyone yeah. goes, whoa, they're in the Premier League. That's weird. Yeah. And for some reason, all the major clubs are like, yeah, we've got them at home. That'll be really, really easy. And that team always ends up picking up like 25 points before Christmas. Then everyone catches on and, and the second yeah. half of the season is harder. I reckon they'll be 14th. I think they'll be fine. Yeah. Remember, remember this. If you're in the comment section right now <laughs> typing Macintosh and then any form of swear word, remember this. Uh, just before we go to the break, Mark, tell me about Carney Chukwameka, Aston Villa, England under 19, and now linked with Barcelona. Barcelona and AC Milan, yeah. 18-year-old, good player. Very, very good player. Very young, obviously. So you don't actually know too much about him in terms of Premier League experience. I think he's only played 300 minutes in in the Premier League, but very exciting player, midfielder, really you know attacking, very good ball carrier, active carrier, and by all intents and purposes doesn't want to sign a contract to Aston Villa, which surprises me because there's been a pathway sort of shown with the likes of Jacob Ramsey last season had a really great breakout season. That I think that he sort of doesn't he was not too happy with the amount of minutes that he got last season. But at 18 years old, you think there's going to be more and more minutes as the as his career progresses. So that's an interesting one in terms of why he's not he's not signing the contract. But he's a very exciting player. He's just won the the Euros with with England under 19s. Um, three goals, three assists, I think. So his his stock is high for a young player. Um, very talented. But yeah, the idea that he's not signing a, a new contract to Aston Villa interests me because it's almost like what what do you want as an 18 year old who's getting into the best league in the world let's have it right so not entirely sure why he's, he's maybe looking for a move away but AC Milan and Barcelona there's worse clubs to be linked with alright there it is okay we're going to take a short break where we either try and sell something to pay the electricity bill here or the new managing editor of the audio department tries to make you listen to another athletic podcast back soon this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. Please buy that thing or listen to that thing. 
Uh, this week, we're heading into the latter stages of the Women's European Championships and whisper it, but England might have a chance. Seb Stafford-Bloor, you've been all over this. Have they got a chance? They very much have a chance. I've been really into it, actually, and watching England play... Watching England play like this in a major tournament has been, as a veteran of a lot of very, very disappointing England tournament performances of the past, a bit of cliche, but there's been such an optimistic aspect to their football and a really kind of brave element to it as well. And they're really good. And not just in a kind of, we're overrating English football teams because they're English. No, they've been really good. And it's been really nice to see the development too. I watched the 2019 World Cup and England played well in moments but you always felt like there was a ceiling and you always thought they were probably going to lose that game to the USA and it kind of hoped for, for better but wasn't a surprise this time there are probably stronger teams in the tournament I think um, France against Germany is um, the strongest semi-final and most likely that's probably where the winner will come from but England have a have a fighter's chance and uh, yeah it's really exciting actually it's really exciting I, I find myself more into it than I thought I would be my concern is in every World Cup there seems to be a team that starts really really well and the the archetype being Argentina in 2006 where they just Mm -hmm. go off like the Mm -hmm. clappers and and I just I don't want to say this really out loud because in England right now yeah yeah, if you suggest (laughs) that England might not win this Mark what do you think I I, yeah I see what you mean I think to kind of feed off what Seb was saying as well I think that maybe it's because it's a, a home home Euros or a home uh, tournament but there's just no it doesn't feel that there's an element an element of an underdog here with England that actually feels like there's a genuine chance that that we could win and that hasn't really happened all that often it happened maybe last year with the the men's team as well to a certain extent but I've really enjoyed watching watching the Euros as well the the whole tournament you know the the attendances I actually went to a game last week and just the atmosphere was fantastic went to the, the Germany Austria game from an England perspective I think it's funny that if we have it right the the Spain game was Spain did dominate the midfield especially and yeah. did stifle England quite a bit and the narrative if Spain would have actually continued to to win that game it was the final five minutes that that England equalized that I feel like the narrative could be very different very quickly that we did get you know when we had an opposition who was half decent we actually didn't actually you know pass the test so I think it's funny how the narrative can change but I'm happy for it to change because it's saying okay well England's test of metal England's resilience is is strong and they managed to come back and that you know they did it to to great effect and probably it's a flip of a coin I think for this this Sweden game in the semi-final. Seb how much of England's newfound confidence or it's not really they're just composed and professional now aren't they they don't look like they've even considered the notion of losing how much of that is down to the new manager? I wouldn't know Ian I wouldn't know I'm not going to guess at it what I would say is that that Spain game felt like a game of moments in which because we've talked in the past about like teams that start strongly they get undone by technical quality in the latter stages of the tournament like England in both men's and women's football that felt like the moment where everything falls in because okay so Spain take the lead really nice well taken goal Marriott makes a really important save the one that gets tipped over the crossbar and then the equaliser is I know it seems like a little bit of a knockdown and a kind of a last gasp chuck the kitchen sink hope something falls it's actually a really nice goal and it's a really nice piece of movement to create it so I don't know about the culture in Dignan Squad I, I'm not informed well enough to comment on it but it's very pleasing to see those kind of things happening and uh, ending in England's favour. And that has to be a symptom of management because that seems to have been what has been missing in the past. 
I'm very happy to be corrected, but that's just a kind of a, a layman's perspective on it. Well, I'll tell you what, if you are watching it, you really should be listening to the Athletics uh, Women's Football Podcast. It's been going out every night after games with Kate Borsay and Lindsay Hooper, uh, being produced in the small hours by uh, Sophie and Abby uh, in, in the office. And it's a brilliant podcast. Give it a listen and, and, then, and then keep it going. If you, um, you know, if you, you get into women's football for the first time this summer, that podcast will still be running next season for the domestic game as well. So go and check that out. Now, next item on the show, I, I really want to stress that Seb put this on. Yeah. And I said, surely we should take this off. No one cares. Um, but I have been outvoted. Uh, Southend United. You may remember Southend United from such encounters as Southend United won Manchester United nil in 2006. And that was a Manchester United team that contained both Cristiano Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney. Ten internationals, uh, plus David Jones, who I think ended up going to Derby shortly afterwards. Southend were in the second division there, the championship, as you young people will call it. Since then, it's not really gone so well. Southend have dropped all the way down into League Two, springed up very briefly into League One, and are now non-league. Or as I explained to people who don't really follow football, where my football team is, they are now so bad, they're not allowed in to the Football League. But Ron Martin has won his tax case. Seb, why did you want to talk about this? Well, just because we've known each other for a long time, and I understand... Yeah. You have quite a complex relationship with your football team. Uh, <laughs> I you, hate them. Yes, yeah, I hate Southend United. Well, I wanted to dig into this because, um, mm. well, why don't we start by telling us um, Ron Martin's history with Southend United? Because that's an interesting uh, reference point for the viewers. Listeners. Seb, I, I don't know if you know, but I recently got a new job here at The Athletic that carries a lot of responsibility and I don't really want to lose it inside the first month because I've said something bad here. Um, Ron Martin is the owner of Southend United. There you go. That's covered everything. Um, okay, I'll tell you, I'll tell, I'll tell you what. Do you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Southend United are a small football club, and they have always been a small football club. They are not a team that has you know fallen away, but they're, they're really good. In the, no, they, they were never very good in the 1920s, and you know are constantly trying to get back up there. They've always been a small football club, and everyone. On a previous episode of the TIFO Football Podcast, I spoke about how I've been approached by some people who were putting together a consortium to buy a football club. And this was shortly after I sold Muddy Knees Media. And they all said, Southend United, Southend United. And I was like, no, it's like a cursed burial ground of a football club. Everything always goes wrong there. We have Bobby Moore as manager and even that didn't make people like us or, or go. It is where it is. There have been some incredible moments in my lifetime. But the thing is, when you're a little club, the big clubs take everything off you. The big clubs came in, I think, the early 80s. Uh, all football matches, the attendance was shared between both teams. Big clubs didn't like that because they wanted the uh, the, the full share. Um, the Premier League, when the ladder was pulled up on uh, on the rest of the football league and all the money was hoarded. You're a little club, you, you get left out of that. But... You know, that was okay because we could still build up players. Youth development, Stan Collymore, whose uh, career had hit the skids. He hadn't quite come through at Crystal Palace. We got Stan Collymore for 175 grand, sold him for four and a half million. You know, you could bring young players up and then the big clubs decided they wanted to take that as well. So in came P, and little clubs suddenly were, you know, you could bring in the new Lionel Messi and it wouldn't matter because he could get snatched away by a club with a better youth development system. So the big clubs will always take every 
everything off the little clubs. But the one thing they can't take is your dignity. You are the only person who can ever remove your dignity. And I think Southend have done that too many times for my liking. And that's why I'm, I'm in a bad mood with them. Primarily because Chris Powell, who is a brilliant man, first and foremost, a brilliant man. Nicest also, man in the whole game. He, do you know what? He's not even the nicest man in football. He might be the nicest man I've ever met. If I had a kid who was playing football and I wanted to put them in the right club, I would want Chris Powell to be the manager. And he's a proven manager. He won the he won League One with, with Chelton Athletic. Southend went through an injury crisis. If it was on football manager, you would throw your laptop out the window. It was about 14 senior players from a squad of about 15 were injured and the chairman Ron Martin said because the team spiraled obviously um, he said don't worry we're we're not going to sack the manager for an injury crisis and two weeks later we sacked the manager in an injury crisis and it's never really picked up from there I mean in fairness to him Kevin Bond came in and performed a kind of last day of the season rescue job but then I think we lost the first six games next season. He was gone, so Campbell was in, and down and down we went. And it's I don't even blame any of the managers that have replaced Chris Powell because the club is so very, very difficult to run. But that was a good man running the club. We also have Paul Sturrock, who they sacked two weeks before a cup final. The man had Parkinson's. That was going to be his last swan song, taking Southend to Wembley. And that was snatched off him with two weeks to go. So Phil Brown, like... There were 30,000 Southend fans in Wembley that day. And Phil Brown was very much like a lot of them, watching Southend pretty much for the first time. And we lost 2-0. There are little things, as I say, everything else gets taken away from you, but only you can give away your dignity. And I think we've done that. We're now non-league. Ron Martin has been promising a new stadium, I think, since 1999. There was certainly a lot of talk of it in 2006. It was about to happen. I remember talking to Phil Brown shortly after he took over and I had expressed some notion of what the hell are you doing here? And he had said, have you seen the new stadium plans? This place is going somewhere. And yeah, the tax case is over and that should free up the ability to build this stadium that's been in the works for over 20 years. But in the meantime, my feelings towards the club have have corroded, rather. I don't feel that there's a lot that I want to get behind. I won't always feel like that. I think most football fans will go through this at some point. But that's where I am right now. These are my feelings. And that concludes my TED Talk. (laughs) That was so much better than I imagined that it would be. That 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 really delivered as a segment. That was fantastic. Thanks, man. I'm happy that (laughs) my pain is this show's gain. This is where you bring pain, TFA Football Podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, it's it's almost nice in a way because, like, when Southend went into non-league, I was already very much into the period of, like, and it sort of softened the blow very much. You know, um, we had a long-term listeners of the podcast remember Mark Mosley from his time at Weymouth and mm, um, a good man good man very very successful in non-league football won uh, back-to-back promotions with Weymouth and um, on the back of that got a job at Southend United and I remember knowing and liking Mark and admiring his work and thinking what are you taking that job for that's kind of the the outside perception of Southend and uh, didn't go well for Mark there but he's bouncing back uh, now um, Where is he now? He's at Aldershot, I think. Aldershot Town. Oh, excellent. Um, but he's a good man and a very, very talented coach. Um, but yeah, Southend, uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully back in the Football League at some point. With it, the do you know what? There is, there is a hardcore of Southend fans, about uh, usually sort of three, three and a half thousand. And they have demonstrably watched them through thin and thinner. And their passion and their support for the team, it goes way beyond anything 
I could do. And they hold it together. It's an extraordinary level of devotion for a team that has offered so little um, back to them. So all the best for the new season. Um, it, uh, do you know what? Things, things do seem to be turning around there. Stan Collymore is back and uh, with him... As what? I think his official title is Director of Football Operations. And he has assembled a really good team. Kevin Mayer, who's a brilliant midfielder in 2000, so that 2006 glory period. He's there with a number of other ex-players. But John Still is there as well. Years and years at Barnet. No one knows the lower leagues quite like him. So it, it feels weird to say it, but there are sensible things happening at the football club at the moment. But uh, it, it remains to be seen. Hey, football league season, which we're not involved in, gets started this weekend, doesn't it? This weekend, yeah. I'm actually able to report on uh, a game the following weekend. I'm reporting on Norwich versus Wigan, which should be Norwich fun. My Wigan. first time at Carrow Road. So I'm excited about the, the Football League season. Lovely again. place to watch football, Norwich. Norwich. Seb, you keeping an eye on the Football League this year? No, I'm uh, I'm all in on this wider <laughs> Bundesliga. So our coverage of the Football League here in Germany is a little bit patchy and it's not quite complete enough. Like If you watch the games, you feel a little bit of a... You feel like you're being shortchanged because you can't invest properly. So I'd rather not invest at all and just mm. watch the the German football. Uh, the Zweite Bundesliga is wonderful. It started in the middle of July, would you believe? Um, so it's now properly up and up and running. But I'll take my attention away from the football league, sadly. Well, I am someone who has just left a job playing football manager for a living for a Monday nine to five middle management role. I don't have an awful lot of time. I'll probably watch, you know, a, a game or two a week. If I was tempted into something more exotic, why would I be tempted into the second flight of German football? It's not very predictable. I think it was, certainly last season, it was kind of a land of fallen giants. Schalke were down there, Werder Bremen were down there, Hamburg is still there, St. Pauli are there. They're not a giant, but Hanover there too. And it's a league where for whatever reason clubs manage to trip themselves up continuously there is no such thing as form there is no such thing as a uh, certain outcome it's also very likable in the sense that with that i think what we've got used to as football fans today is the idea that at any given time in a division you know exactly who's going to win the games every week and anything other than a win is a catastrophe and there's a sulk and there's a drama i think what i like about this wider bundesliga is the fact that everybody just accepts the calamities as just part of the part of the season so um, for instance good example this weekend Hamburg were hosting Hansa Rostock and unfortunately great Uwe Zeller passed away last week at 85 and he's a Hamburg legend he's kind of a great gentleman of German football and probably the most revered man uh, he captained Germany in the 966 World Cup final scored against England in 1970 passed away and Hans Fahr put on a lovely ceremony at the Volkspark before it and it's all kinds of tributes, lovely TFOs. Do find the kind of the images if you if you can on Google. And Hasfau again for the fourth season in a row, heavily favoured. Got to go and win. Got to get promoted. Lost one nil in ninety fourth minute because this is what happens. And it's a very charming league, and and it's a it's very ordinary. There's not a lot of star power in that league, and so you can watch a game and you can watch games in neutral and just get your money's worth because it's just a um, you never know quite what you're going to see. Hey, but watch out for St. Pauli this season. I think St. Pauli are the best team in Hamburg this year. Very, very good. Very, uh, very Woof. interesting. I don't know if we've got a big German audience, but that probably put a target on your head right right there. You know, we walk Honestly, in the streets and people are going to be hey, coming after you. I was having a conversation with my Hamburg supporting brother-in-law yesterday, who uh, is very much anti-St. Pauli, and he agrees with me. I think they're the better team, and um, they look very, very cohesive. Also, last-minute goal from Jackson Irvine rescued a point 
Hull fans will remember him. Rescued a point for them over the weekend, which is uh, just good news. Mark, have you got like a, a secret league that you, you keep an eye on? I like to keep an eye on Real Oviedo in the Segunda. Because Are you a shareholder? I am. Oh. Well, no, I'm not personally. It's my dad. Oh, um, nice. So basically my dad used to live uh, in Oviedo and he was uh, friends. He actually lived with someone who played for Real Oviedo the, the year that he was there. So he's got a, a bond with that. So I always keep an eye on uh, Oviedo. They're just notoriously always pushing for promotion as long as I've been alive, which is always really frustrating because I think it, down to the last day, I think either the penultimate game or down to the last day last season, they could have got into the playoffs, snuck into the playoffs, and they failed to do it yet again. So they're a frustrating team uh, to follow as my second team. But the Segunda is my uh, my niche. Nice. I tell you what, if you're in the comments section right now, just uh, backspace for all the swear words and, and let us know which is your kind of secret league that you, you like to keep tabs on. I know there's a, a lot of people who use the, you know, the bookmaker websites have live streams of like the Turkish Premier League and things like that. I swear to God, people are just doing it to get an edge in Football Manager. But I respect that. Game recognises game. Seb, you wanted to talk about Chris Kirkland, former Liverpool, Coventry, Wigan all sorts of people, goalkeeper. Sheffield Wednesday, Wednesday, of course. There's a big story in The Athletic about him. Yeah, obviously, a very, very sad story. So Chris Kirkland has revealed that he's um, he's actually been fighting a very long-term battle with painkiller addiction. And the only reason I I thought it should be on the plan is because I I think this is going to turn out to be something that a lot of footballers share in time. If you think about sort sort of the physical hardship placed on players particularly probably at football league level where it's very much a kind of Monday, Wednesday, Saturday game, uh, Saturday, Monday. I'm going to start that again, where it's very much pause a Saturday, Wednesday, <laughs> Saturday game. Expertly done. Anyway, I, I think, I don't know. I, I obviously we wish Chris Kirkland all the best and he seems mm. to be in a much better place these days. And um, that, that's great to hear, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if that was a very common thing, just because I, I, I think the culture, like it is in so many sports, it's hardly unique to football, but the culture is you've you got to keep going and you've got you to stay fit. And I suppose particularly as you, you drop down the divisions, like being injured comes with a risk of losing your career, especially now and especially in a kind of post-pandemic world. So very brave of him to share his feelings. I think Henry Winter might have done the original interview. So do give, it, give that a read. But um, yeah, very, very sad story, but glad to see that he's yeah. kind of on the other side of things. It's incredible, isn't it? Because you, when you meet ex-footballers, you, you can always tell that they played a lot of football because they walk like they've yeah. just been in a car crash. Yeah. Um, their gait is all over the place. You can see that they're, you know, it's, mm. um, it's not a long career, but it certainly takes its, um, its pound of flesh, doesn't it? Yeah, and I remember thinking about this with uh, Stephen Gerrard when he was saying about Bukayo Saka and wanting more protection for him. And I think he said, I've got screws in my hips. I've had about 16 operations. And, almost not wearing it as a badge of honour, but sort of saying to Saka, like, you know, buck up your ideas, you'll be fine sort of thing. And I, I think there should be more protection for that reason. I know that a back injury or the back injury for, for Chris Kirkland was a really innocuous one, but you've got to maybe look after these players' bodies as best they can, but also help them with the support all around this. Because as Seb says, going down the, the football leagues in any country, it gets tougher and tougher to, to maintain that livelihood because your body is your livelihood. And if ever you're out, then it, you know, people have mortgages to pay and things like that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, just time to have a look at a few transfers going on there. Mark, tell me about Gianluca Scamacca. Scamacca, yeah, by, by, for all intents and purposes, going to be making the move to West Ham. I think it's just about crossing the, crossing the T's. Uh, what what sort of player is he? So he's quite a tough one to, to pin down. He's still he's still relatively young, twenty three. He's six foot four, so he's got a good aerial presence. But I think that it's you tend to sometimes when someone's six foot four, you think that they are going to only be good aerially. I think that it's important to say that he offers so much in terms of his all round game and his his skill set more generally. Had a good season last season with uh, with Sassuolo. He scored sixteen goals, I think, which is strong, but not absolutely ridiculously prolific. But yeah, off the back of that, obviously going to make this this move to West Ham. I think that with the move to West Ham, you've got to be careful not to use him as purely an, an aerial presence because you, you could easily do that because he has got a very good physical physical presence. But the way that he can bring other people into play is really strong. The way that he can score all sorts of goals from distance and hasn't actually scored all that many goals with his head as well, which is important to, to say. But a really exciting young player, got all the attributes, I think, physically to be able to, to operate in the Premier League. Might need to strengthen up a little bit, but that's fine. But yeah, a really exciting player. I think West Ham will do, do well this season. Talking of big lads, uh, Benjamin Sesco. Um, now, if you're, this is, I think, the fourth reference to Football Manager now, so that's actually down on last episode um, that I hosted. Benjamin Sesko, Red Bull Salzburg, six foot two Slovenian, seems to be pinging the radar of a lot of clubs. His agent very cheekily uh, took a picture of him eating dinner by the Tyne last week, which got the local papers there all talking. He's even been linked with Manchester United. Who is this boy, and is he as good in real life as he is on Football Manager? I've seen the, the rumours of, of him as well. I can't confess to have seen that much of him, him play, but I think it's a, an interesting one in terms of just how much, in general, across European football, more geared towards the Premier League, there's more of a move to, towards that kind of number nine or 
knowing how good Haaland and Mbappe are, you know, across Europe, that maybe trying to find players who are the, the 2.0 or the, the Mbappe and Haaland light. You know, you think of Ekatike going to, to PSG and we're talking about Skamaka and Darwin Nunez obviously going to Liverpool. That there's, There seems to be a little bit more of a move towards a, an out-and-out out number nine or players who are pure goal scorers, which is maybe a little bit of a move away from the past few years, which has been amongst the top teams, more of a move to towards a false number nine. And then you've got the, the wide players who are maybe a little bit more your goal scorers. So as much as anything, I think it's a really interesting trend that it's more down towards those goal scoring number nine. Seb, players. is there a realistic chance that Mick Harford would be the number nine you'd want right now? Yeah, a kind of Mick Harford, Lee Chapman type of figure. Yeah, that could probably do some damage. I have a, it's my, my, my great half-baked theory, actually, Ian, is that the target man's going to come back going to take advantage as the central defenders evolve away from what they once were from you know they no longer look like Steve Bruce basically yes eventually there is an evolutionary step which is occupied by big kind of Mick Harford type Uh, for any younger viewers Kevin Francis um, is is probably my favourite target man for any younger viewers, Mick Harford was basically think of the roughest pub in your town and then think of the worst person whose pint you could spill and then imagine him flying through the air, both elbows up. And there, there is Mick Harford right there. Um, I think it's absolutely true. It's like it's a, a, the, the evolution. It's an arms race, isn't it? We've yeah. seen um, a number of books written, Jonathan Wilson's book, of course, about tactics and how everything kind of goes like that it's the first time I've ever thought about it in a physical sense but, but you're right the, the, the flightier defenders get the more you can damage them with a big lad is, is Andy Carroll the man who will be forever known as being 10 years ahead of his time well this is the thing like, I, I, it feels like Andy Carroll occurred in the sort of the, the, the gap between eras sort of I, I remember thinking Andy Carroll would be exciting because he would be an evolved target man. He'd be a, he'd be target man 2.0 and he, he could do all sorts of damage. The body let him down. So that's one. Mm. But when I was younger, I, I grew up in Oxford and I used to go and watch Oxford United at the Manor Ground. And there was a period where they had Kevin Francis for a couple of years. Kevin Francis, six foot seven centre forward. Not the mm. best on the floor, but he was six foot seven and he was, you know, he was a presence. And I watched Oxford for 90 minutes do nothing other than just lump the ball at Kevin Francis and hope for the best. And they beat Norwich 1-0 in the particular game they're remembering. And it's just like, if you have a tactic like that and another team knows you're going to do it but can't stop it, it's pretty powerful stuff, no? Yeah. It brings back memories of Peter Crouch when like, whoever he signed for, they were like, well, he's enormous. Let's just get onto his head before slowly realising that he actually wasn't that good in the air. I think it was uh, Rafa Benitez who really worked with him yeah, with his really aerial yeah, abilities him. and turned him into the player. But before then, hey, he was, he was not, good at not sort that of, hot. He was good at manoeuvring defenders. Like the, the great skill with Peter Crouch was, I know people go, good feet for a big man. Yeah, he, he did have a nice touch. But also if you watch the way he knocked the ball down, the way he would manoeuvre a defender into a position in which mm. he couldn't even challenge for the ball. That was what Crouch was really good at. Kevin Francis was good at that too. It wasn't just, I'm six foot seven, and when I jump, I'm 10 foot tall. And it, yeah. it wasn't that. It was just a, a tactic that nobody could properly nullify. And so I'm fascinated by how it reappears, because it will, inevitably. Mark, look, looking around the Premier League and, and Europe, the who are the, the up-and-coming target men that could best crest this wave? That's another good question. I mean... Uh, yeah, I'm not, not entirely sure. I think, yeah, we think of someone like Ekatike as well. I'm really excited to see how he'll do for, for PSG because he was, again, rumours come to the Premier League to, for Newcastle. It was an ongoing, would we call it a saga? I'm not sure. But he was, yeah, from January onwards, he was maybe going to come in. 
in terms of young players, I'm, I'm not too sure. There's, yeah, there's some exciting players who are all over you. I think, yeah, you make a good point about um, Sesco. That could be that could be a very good one. I, I've heard good things about him, but I need to watch more of him. Maybe a job for Scout. Yeah, I tell you what, there's an article in there for the Athletic. We'll pitch that in the next meeting. Seb, anything else caught your eye in the in transfer world? Not in transfer land. I'm amused that nobody has taken a risk on Sasa Kalajic from Stuttgart yet, because not really a target man, but a very complete forward. He is a good one to pin your hopes on, and relatively cheap too, because he's got an expiring contract. All right. Well, you can keep up to date with all the transfer news and all the other news and any other sports that you particularly like on The Athletic. Just get on your browser right now or on your phone and just type in theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. It'll take you to a very special page. It'll give you a very special offer. And it is an offer that's going to make your bank account look good. It's going to make us look good as well. Everyone in the company will know where that subscription has come from. And that's what keeps the lights on. That's what keeps us all in the job. It keeps Joe Devine happy sure you... too. This is really important. Exactly. Like, Joe is a happy guy, but his happiness is sustained by athletic subscriptions. Very, very important Absolutely. to understand this. And so if you don't want to lose that persona, you don't lose that kind of hosting style the kind of the joy and the that slightly wild unpredictable ride that you go on every time you 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 join a tfa podcast subscribe have to do it and and it is a persona because underneath that that niceness is actually a a bear of a man a a wild bear uh, not to be approached terrifying i mean it's it's because he's so big it's a furniture that he flings around when things don't go his way chairs tables everything he's um a monster like, is, is a harsh word, yeah. but I think I think it's it's justified. It's like one of those giants, you know, you know, in Game of Thrones when they go on to the other side of the wall and and the wildlings are kind of plotting their their journey south, and you have those giants. Yeah. That's Joe. That's that's kind yeah. of when I stand next to Joe. That's the, kind of the dynamic because I'm I'm a I'm an average sized man. I'm only five foot ten, and he is and- as we know like seven foot three. So he's interesting though because um, you remember Simon Mignolet. Um, the former Sunderland and Liverpool goalkeeper. Now he was six foot six, but it's, see, he it, was you six just done the face. Six. I didn't know that. Everyone does that face. No I, one ever because he never he? seemed like he was six I, foot six. I um, I Joe Devine. Joe Devine is the opposite. I mean, he is tall. He's about six two, six three, but he seems a lot taller. Well, that's what I was going to say because I'm six foot four, I think. So am I taller than Joe Devine? But I just do. I not give off that. Part of it is physicality and part of it is just presence. He just gives off extra height. It's extraordinary. Um, But you've just checked that on the internet and found out it's true. No, I found out that he's six foot four and that you've lied to the podcast. Damn it! Oh, no. You have All right. Well, maybe he had, maybe he had a quiff. Well, the thing is, that was six foot six. Six foot four is still, I I would have thought him to be more of a kind of Shea Given goalkeeper, like a six foot one Mm. guy. Six foot four still surprises me because that's sort of, that's Thibaut Courtois height, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So there yeah. you go. Take away the six foot six. Insert six foot four. I bet you were still surprised because yeah, he um, never seemed to be that no, tall. Anyway, that's my way of wrapping up this episode of the TIFO Football Podcast. If you're watching this and down below, you'll see opportunities to like, uh, to subscribe. Again, these are all very, very important things. And feel free to leave a note in the comments. Um, provided that you're not being really, really mean, because this this ego is very fragile. It's a gossamer thin, and I will fall apart as a person. Hey, <laughs> thanks for watching. <laughs>